Blessed. 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 Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are discouraged. Who have been burdened by the headlines. Screaming brutality of all kinds. From all sides. You who have reached the end of what you know to do. For you, we'll see God come through. Blessed are the humble. Those who sometimes stumble toward the truth. That we all share some reliance on bias. Blessed are you who admit that you might not have all the answers. That there might be another narrative that's not exactly like yours. For that means God can reach you. And has so much more to teach you. Blessed are the merciful. Those who speak and act and fight. Against the tide of mass discrimination that bears relation to our grim history of racism. You're blessed when you dare to care. For there will come a time when God will care for you in kind. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who have borne the pain of your brothers and sisters. When you have seen the inequality in education, in economics, in opportunity. Brought about by a history of hate. You're blessed when you have allowed it to break your hearts. To break your hearts. To break your hearts. For God promises. To put those parts back together. And blessed are the peacemakers. Those who aren't standing by waiting to be peace partakers. Waiting for the anthem protests. Or the racial unrest to turn it up. Or quiet down. Blessed are you who are devoted to the praying. The shaping. The making of peace. Even where it seems most unachievable. For you are living as the holy people of God. You are the world's light. You burn in the night. And you're called to turn the spotlight upon injustice and oppression. Saying without fear, look. 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 Right this moment. This moment. This moment. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening here? Welcome to the first message in our new series on the Beatitudes. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be spending some time encountering some of Jesus' most radical, challenging, misunderstood, and misapplied teaching. So if you could turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my behalf. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning as we get into your word together. We pray that as we encounter you in your word, we would be changed. Speak to us, Lord. Change us, Lord. Work in our hearts, Lord, as we experience your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We have called our new series, An Antidote to Comfortable Christianity. And I believe it is a really apt title. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of the Beatitudes, these Beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. There is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. C.S. Lewis said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. Crushed to the ground, being knocked flat by a sledgehammer. In his series on the Sermon on the Mount, Lloyd-Jones went on to claim that if we read it right, the sermon should fill us with terror. And that if we should ever find ourselves arguing with it, it means that there is either something wrong with us or we're interpreting it wrongly. So what are we getting into in this new series? Well, my role today is to introduce us to this sledgehammer. And I'd like to do that by focusing on the answers to three questions. What are the Beatitudes all about? Who are they for? And what do we do with them? So first of all, what are these Beatitudes all about? The Beatitudes form the introduction to a part of Matthew's gospel that Augustine first coined the Sermon on the Mount. And the root of the sermon may have been an actual sermon that Jesus delivered. But in the gospel, Matthew has summarized it and he's edited it. And he's also put it into a very specific context for his readers. Because we have to recognize the gospel writers weren't just note takers. They weren't just capturing everything that Jesus said and then just presenting it on. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to capture specific points that God wanted their audience and us to hear. So here's the story so far. Jesus has begun a ministry of teaching and preaching and healing the ordinary folk in the towns and villages where he grew up. And in a somewhat dramatic manner, he has announced in his local synagogue, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy of God's promise of salvation. Take a look at how Luke records it in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine if you were there? Can you imagine how you might have reacted? Jesus placed himself right in the center of God's promise in Isaiah 61 to bring salvation to his people. And he said that his coming represented the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. Through Jesus, God was breaking in afresh to the lives of his people. He was teaching them, he was healing them, and he was calling them to become his disciples, to receive the good news of this kingdom. And it is into this context that Matthew set the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of five great discourses that Matthew records of Jesus' teaching. And it's a manifesto. It's a manifesto setting out the nature of what life looks like in God's kingdom, in this new kingdom that he said has arrived as he has arrived on earth. The Sermon on the Mount is a radical manifesto, but it isn't novel. The Beatitudes are a lightning bolt, a direct revelation from God coming from the mouth of the incarnate word himself. But as we examine them, and indeed the whole sermon in the context of the first century world, we see that it is also deeply rooted in the Old Testament Jewish tradition. Firstly, Jesus is presented as a prophet along the lines of Isaiah and Jeremiah, calling the people back to their covenant with God, who cares about the heart, not just their external rituals and their extravagant deeds. But Jesus isn't just a prophet. The sermon also operates in a wider context, appealing to followers of Greek and Roman philosophy. Here Jesus is a wise philosopher, calling people to reorient their lives according to a virtuous vision of the world. He's a teacher, gathering and instructing disciples, promising the way to true wholeness of life. And thirdly, as we saw in the way that Lloyd-Jones and C.S. Lewis reacted, the words of this manifesto are so profound, we are forced to face the challenge that the author of these words is more than just a prophet or a philosopher, but is God himself. We have to ask, who is it that utters these words? Who is it that can utter these words? It can only be God himself. These are the kinds of words that only God could speak. These are the words of the king of the universe made flesh among us. And if we receive him, he says, 
He's inviting us to be a part of his kingdom. That's why Lloyd-Jones claimed this sermon should fill us with terror. Because it's God's manifesto. This is how God views us. And if we see it differently, if we dare to challenge it, then we are wrong. We are exposed for who we are. But if we approach it with humility, seeing it for what it really is, we find that we are invited, actually not just invited, but welcomed to enjoy the blessings of this kingdom. According to New Testament theologian Jonathan Pennington, the Sermon on the Mount answers the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness? What is blessedness? And how do we get it and how do we keep it? So let's take a look at these Beatitudes, these blessings that introduce the sermon. And I want us to encounter the actual words of Christ together. So let's read them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on his behalf. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In our culture, even if it is used at all, the word blessing is definitely out of vogue. In my mind, it kind of conjures up this picture of octogenarians sat on a veranda talking to each other in their rocking chairs. You know, so if you ask them, what's a blessing? You might hear something like, ooh, cup of tea in the morning, that's a blessing. You know, but the word blessing in the Beatitudes is not superficial, nor is it nostalgic. Neither is it about having to do something to win God's blessing. It's not even about having something that God blesses. The Greek word makarism that we translate blessing in the text is way more impactful than that. Pennington says, a makarism is a statement that ascribes happiness or flourishing to a particular person. A macarism is a pronouncement that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing. Macarisms don't generally describe actions, but rather people who are in a particular state. 
This Macarism blessing then is a pronouncement about a state of being rather than an action. It's ascribing a state of flourishing and wholeness. The Beatitudes are a declaration of the holistic peace expressed in the Hebrew word shalom. This is the kind of peace that can only come from God when he makes his home with us. It's the peace that casts out fear. It's the peace that Jesus describes in John 14 when he says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is true shalom. The deep holistic peace that God offers us in his kingdom. The Beatitudes describe what we can expect life to be in his kingdom. Despite what they're commonly called, the Beatitudes are not attitudes to be in order to earn God's favor. They are descriptions, not prescriptions. Matthew used a common first century literary form known as an inclusio to emphasize that he's describing kingdom blessings. He bounds the beginning and the end of the sections between verses 3 and 10 with the promise of the kingdom of God. So if the Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto, if it's God's manifesto, who are these blessings for? Who is this kingdom life promised to? Matthew tells us that the original audience was Jesus' disciples. This is not just the 12, but the wider group of Jesus' followers. He also tells us that the crowd was present. And they would have heard what Jesus was saying. And it's quite likely that Jesus had the crowd in mind as he explained his kingdom to his followers. So these words are words for Jesus' followers. They are not an ethic for the whole of mankind, although they are probably the ultimate ethic that the whole of mankind would benefit from. Nor are they a mechanism by which we can somehow please God. They are words that make it clear that everyone is welcome to follow Jesus. It's not about having to be someone or to do something to qualify. Rather, Jesus is throwing open the gates of his kingdom wide because we are all on level ground before God. No one is excluded. All are welcome especially those our world excludes. In her study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jen Wilkins said, No doubt, when Jesus' freshly minted disciples seated themselves at his feet on that mountainside 2,000 years ago, they had no idea what he was about to utter. I suspect they had their own expectation of what it would mean to be in the inner circle of the king, prophesied to sit on David's throne, a vision that probably did not include poverty of any kind, 
or mourning or meekness or hunger and thirst. I suspect their visions of walking closely with Jesus involve being the strongest, not the weakest, the greatest rather than the least, the first rather than the last. Jesus' words must have blown the disciples' minds. They had grown up in a world where the privileged were the blessed ones. The powerful were seen as favored by God. Material wealth and health and position in society were believed to be a result of God's blessing and favor. The poor and the sick, they were cursed by God. They were excluded from him and from his blessing. Unfortunately, we continue to see this, even sadly, in the church, some of which still misunderstands Jesus' words. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman, the former dean of Boston University, a theologian who was deeply influential in the life of Martin Luther King Jr., said this, He said, what became a religion of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, must not tempt us into believing that it was thus in the mind and life of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Wherever his spirit appears, the oppressed gain fresh courage, for he announced the good news that fear hypocrisy and hatred, the three hounds of hell that track the trail of the disinherited, need have no dominion over them. Blessed are the disinherited, the grieving, the damaged, and the brokenhearted. Blessed are the ones no one notices, the missing ones, the ones who slipped in here this morning, avoiding the welcome table and the name badge, sitting quietly in the back. We may not have seen you, but Jesus does. Just as Jesus' invitation list was a shock to the disciples, it's still so different from how our culture decides who's in and who's out, who's cool and who's not. I really enjoy meeting folk for coffee in Barnes & Noble across the street. Uh, while I'm waiting for them to arrive, I kind of browse through the magazine racks on sort of on the left as you go in there. And they're so brightly covered and they stand out as you go in. But think for a moment about what they celebrate. Exotic vacations, boats, cars, health, wealth, retirement planning, and probably the boldest and brightest of all, the lives of our culture's celebrities, the rock stars, the TV personalities, the movie actors, the politicians, and the sports stars. Social media profiles do the same thing. They celebrate our secular beatitudes. Blessed are the celebrities, the rich, the beautiful, and the powerful, especially if you're all three of those things. Blessed are the Instagram influencers. Okay, I have to say, I have never really gotten Instagram. I joined a long time ago to try and work out what the fuss was all about. And I have made four posts in three years. (laughs) But somehow, I've acquired 85 followers. So those posts must be really influential. 
But through my extensive research, I have discovered that with 85 followers and four posts, I don't quite qualify to be an Instagram influencer. Apparently, to be a micro-influencer, not even a real influencer, a micro-influencer, I'd need 10,000 followers. And to be a macro-influencer, I need to have at least a million followers. We say, blessed are the beautiful, the powerful, the Instagram influencers. Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. We say, blessed are the party people. Their lives are so full of laughter and fun. At least that's what we see on Instagram. He says, blessed are those who mourn. We say, blessed are the self-assured. They're going to inherit the best jobs. He says, blessed are the meek. We say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for food, sex and money, the things that make us happy, just like the magazines and social media tell us. He says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. No magazine covers for them. They are way too dull and boring. Jesus was attracted to completely different people than those our culture celebrates. Not just a bit different, the opposites, the nobodies, the weak, the excluded, the poor, the lepers, the prostitutes, the oddballs, the homeless and the marginalized. The ones, as Simon and Garfunkel put it, blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon and the ratted on. In fact, when Jesus encountered the powerful and the privileged, he usually brought them down a peg or two. The problem wasn't the power, the wealth or the privilege. The problem was the pride and hypocrisy that so often comes along with it. The powerful and the privileged don't need anyone. They can so easily be satisfied in themselves. Quoting Proverbs 3.34 in 1 Peter 5.5, Peter tells us, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The proverb itself expands that a little bit. God actually mocks the proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. God mocks the very people we think we want to be like. No wonder the power and the privileged, the religious celebrities of his days, hated Jesus so much. They didn't like the early church much either. This band of nobodies who changed the world? If you are poor, weak, and broken, if you feel marginalized or damaged, if you're sitting here today racked in shame and guilt for things in your past or even your present, I have got good news for you. He came for you. He has thrown the gates of his kingdom wide open and you are invited. You're actually the special guests. You're the most welcome. In your poverty and brokenness, come and enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. If you're one of the powerful and privileged here today, please beware. Don't be like 
those religious celebrities of old. You don't have to become poor or ugly to enter the kingdom of God. But you do have to make sure your trust is in Jesus, not in your wealth, your career, or your carefully crafted Instagram profile. So how do we respond to these Beatitudes? As I've said before, it's okay to not be okay. Jesus meets us where we are, wherever that is. But the Beatitudes tell us that he does not leave us there. He is the solution. He is the peace bringer. As we turn to him in humility and faith, he welcomes us into his kingdom. We experience the shalom of God and its fruit starts to grow and be revealed in our lives. The Beatitudes or the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, for that matter, are not laws for the new kingdom. As I already mentioned, they're descriptions, not prescriptions. We're not brought into a state of human flourishing and the shalom of God, only to find out that there's a whole new list of laws that we now need to follow if we want to stay. In fact, the only imperative in the Beatitudes is rejoice, be glad, because such is our reward in heaven. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this. He is not telling us what we should be. Rather, he is describing what the power of the kingdom makes us. We are comforted. We are filled. We've received mercy. We are the children of God. And as we receive, the result is an overflow. As our hearts are touched, it is only natural to reach out and touch the lives of others. What can recipients of true mercy be other than merciful? How can those who have been filled with his righteousness not overflow into the lives of others? It's like kingdom genes have been grafted into our DNA. It, makes, it becomes what we do because of who we now are. This is grace at work. The kingdom of God has broken into our lives and we're changed. And this change compels us to act. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, Humanly speaking, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. But Jesus knows only one possibility, simple surrender and obedience, doing it and obeying it. He does not mean for us to discuss it as an ideal. He really means for us to get on with it. Today, this morning, is an introduction to these Beatitudes. And we're going to be digging into them in the coming weeks. But I would like to close today with a true story of the kind of thing that can happen when we encounter these words and begin to put them into action in our lives. I've just finished reading a book by a lawyer that the New York Times says may indeed be America's Mandela. 
founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and a passionate advocate over many years for death row inmates struggling with mental health issues and more recently for children incarcerated for life without the possibility of parole. Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, is a haunting and challenging read. Stevenson's personal response to the Beatitudes had a profound impact on the lives of some of the most damaged and broken people in America. Fresh out of Harvard Law School, Stevenson took an internship working with uh, inmates on Georgia's death row, where he unexpectedly found himself encountering God's mercy among some of those we might consider to be the least deserving of all. So impacted was he with God's mercy towards these condemned men and women, he made it his life's work to fight for decency and fairness in the criminal justice system. And through his efforts, he challenged judges, prosecutors, and simply unfair laws on behalf of impoverished and often mentally ill people facing incarceration and excessive punishment. To put the incarceration issue in perspective, the U.S. has by far the highest rate of incarceration in the developed world. The prison population has risen from about 300,000 in the 1970s to around 2.3 million people today. One in 15 people born in the U.S. at the beginning of the 21st century is expected to go to jail or prison. This number increases to one in three if you're a black male. And spending on prisons has risen from seven billion in 1980 to nearly 80 billion today. Over 35 years, Stevenson has helped to begin the process of creating a fairer and more merciful system. This included arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States, a result of which was a 2010 decision, and bear in mind what this not long ago, to ban life imprisonment without parole for children convicted of non-homicide crimes. This act has resulted in hundreds of children being resentenced and dozens have already been released. Some have pushed back on him. Surely these people deserve this treatment after what they've done. His reaction to those that would challenge what he's done and continues to do points us right back to God's promise in Isaiah 61 and the words of the Beatitudes. To the critics, Stevenson says this, the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy, and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. We all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Like Stevenson, we are spoiled for anything else. We've been made new. We've been forgiven. We've received mercy. 
That's why we feel such compassion in us for the broken and the marginalized. We're kingdom people now. And there is much work of his kingdom for us to be about. Let me close with my favorite former Bishop of Durham, who I think sets us up well for our new series. N.T. Wright said this, The Beatitudes are the agenda for kingdom people. They are not simply about how to behave so God will do something nice to you. They are the way in which Jesus wants to rule the world. The work of the kingdom, in fact, is summed up pretty well in those Beatitudes. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers. He sends in people like us.